Hello again. We are back looking at uh, Leviticus again this time. We're looking at part four in our series in which we're looking all the way through that book in the Old Testament. I'm going to start off by reading uh, a passage. It's from the end of Leviticus 9 and the beginning of Leviticus 10 and then we'll pray and then I will crack on. So we're starting at Leviticus 9 verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Let's pray. Father God, we bring ourselves to you, recognising the, the riches of your scripture and of all of it. And we commit ourselves to not only reading the bits that we find easy, the bits that we can easily accommodate ourselves to, but we commit to reading the bits that seem hard to. And we trust you and your spirit as you dwelled with those who wrote your scripture down. You would dwell with us as we read it. So would you bless us now and would you bless me and be with me that nothing I say would get in the way of what you want us to hear and understand. Amen. Now, it's taken me quite some time, really, to, to do the preparation for this talk, to look at it in detail. And that, that means one important thing, which is that there aren't any visuals for you at this point. My hope is that at some point down the line, I might be able to add them, but they won't be ready uh, for the point at which we publish this talk. The other thing I wanted to say before we start is that I found this experience preparing this talk really very exciting. I, I love the way that Leviticus is bringing alive to me an understanding of who Jesus is and what he does. And, and it, it reinforces for me a lot of what the character of God is, is like, uh, of the things that we understand God to be, of, of how we can see in Leviticus the same God that Jesus talks, about, talks to us about when he says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I, I find I find all of that really um, quite enthralling and very inspiring. And, and my hope is that something of that comes across to you as I talk this through. Now, we've been looking at Leviticus and recognising that it is a story. By the way, that the title that I've been working with, Live and Love Either Leviticus, means living the Leviticus life. And that seems to me important because, um, because in Jesus, the Old Testament is fulfilled, not replaced. So Leviticus has something important to say to us. Leviticus is a story, even though it doesn't always seem like it. And it's a story that follows a story, or, or rather it's a, a part of a bigger story, depending on uh, the things that have come before it. It's also a story of its time, uh, a, a tragic and inspiring tale, um, as Joseph 
uh, and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat would put it. Uh, and and it's an important forerunner to what God will do uh, to what God will do next. When the people entering the promised land and, uh, and the judges and the, and the prophets and the kings and the exile and the return and, and all of that is happening and the arrival of Jesus and the building of his church, when, when all of that is going on, what we can see is that God has laid out his way of doing things in Leviticus and in the story that surrounds it. None of any of that stands alone. They are part of the story of God's character and his dealings with humanity. So even if we put Leviticus with its uh, sort of literary context, even then those bits together don't stand by themselves. Leviticus, like the rest of the Bible, is a book of riches, of treasure. And it's an exciting book, as I've said, that gives us a, an exciting understanding of God. But it doesn't give up its treasure lightly. Much as we choose to trust Jesus and recognise the discipline required to follow him, so also we choose to read the Bible and recognise the discipline required to study it well and understand it properly. Helen Painter, who's a, a lecturer up the road at Bristol Baptist College, says that when we read the Bible, we read it as a community. And we need the experts whose job it is to study scripture to read it with us. We need to be in dialogue with them as we read it and with each other too. To ignore that kind of community as we read together is, uh, is to opt out of the body of Christ as we seek to understand what God says to us through his words and his inspired authors. To ignore them also is to assume that we know best just because um, we haven't heard other opinions that, that, that somehow ours that we've arrived at so far are the best ones available. We need the expertise. Just because we can read a Bible that's in front of us, it doesn't make us an expert in reading it well. Any more than being able to add up and take away makes us a good accountant. Anyway, we've reached part four in this look at Leviticus and we'll be looking at four things in this talk. They are number one, the story so far and how it continues. Number two, how is God's place made unclean? Number three, what is clean and what is not? And number four, why is the Day of Atonement so important? In looking at these four things, we'll focus on two bookends. One is a moment when two priests, Nadab and Abihu, get it wrong and may not be pronouncing their names correctly. And my apologies if I'm not. The other is the Day of Atonement. Those are the bookends, the, the, the two priests and the Day of Atonement. Uh, these bookends come at the start of Leviticus 10, thereabouts, and then uh, in Leviticus 16. And I'd like us to remember, uh, while we're looking at this, that we are looking at a story. And to stay aware of two things. One is that there is a narrative tension here. So all good stories have them, and there is another one here. We've had one before. The beginning of Leviticus is the resolution of a narrative tension as God arrives, but Moses can't get access to his house of meeting. And there's a problem here that arises in Leviticus 10, and it needs solving, and that happens in Leviticus 16. The other is that the story is written to explain something. Its purpose is explanation. We'll come back to that. So the story so far, in the beginning, God created. We're in Genesis 1 and we notice what he, what he does when he does that creating, right at the start of the story. The story doesn't begin really with nothing. It begins with chaos. 
So in verse 1, the heavens and the earth are created. And in verse 2, before God goes anywhere near letting there be light, the earth is there, but it's formless and empty. That's how the NIV and many other translations describe it. The things that exist are darkness and water. So what God does is bring order out of chaos. Chaos, darkness and water are what is there. They represent that darkness and chaos. He starts with light, God does, and then he moves on. But creation's purpose is to bring order out of chaos. And this is important because of the ancient Near Eastern worldview. This is an important thing for us to be aware of. There was a way of looking at the world and understanding it then, just as there is now, but there are differences between their way of understanding it and our way of understanding it. They are thousands of years ago, and they're in a different part of the world. For the ancient Near East, if something is good, it is in order. There is order around it. And if something is in chaos, then that's disorder and that's bad. This was the ancient Near Eastern perspective on things. And with that in mind, the structure of Leviticus, the structure that Leviticus brings, is by itself a blessing because it brings order to what otherwise would be chaotic or at least much less ordered. Our perspective, our 21st century Western culture perspective, is much more that if somebody wants to impose their order on you, then that is bad. And you should have the ability and the circumstances that allow you to make your own choices and to, to choose your own structure and order. But that is not the same as the ancient Near Eastern point of view. And it's not always a good perspective to hold either. There are definite strengths to it, but it's not the final answer. We have the account of God's creation and then the rest of Genesis. And that's a long narrative of exile after exile going away from God. And then Exodus takes humanity back towards God. By the way, this away and back pattern is repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Away from God in Judges and back towards God through Samuel and David. Away from God from Solomon onwards through the kings and divided kingdom and conquest and exile. Although there are punctuation marks in that, so there are moments in that history when when the people uh, return to God. But, but it, it, there is this return and exile motif running throughout with with always that exile thing being the thing that causes the most pain as leviticus begins we have god's arriving to dwell with his people he gives instructions for the building of the tabernacle and there's a place set aside for god's dwelling that tabernacle is where he god dwells with his people traveling with them and living among them the tabernacle itself is a is a recreation on a smaller scale of creation it's a kind of eden the place where god dwells and humanity can be in his presence but there's no access to his presence not even for israel's leader moses and then god invites his people to draw near to him invitation is made through uh, a system a, a, a series of of things that bring order and actually we have uh, in that structure we have sacrifices and we talked about them last time that we were looking in, in part three uh, of this series. So there's this focus on sacrifice and, and there are particular things that are signified by those sacrifices. So there's, there's a focus on life through blood as, as animals were killed and the blood was used. There's a focus on fellowship with God. There's ways in which the, the sacrificed animals were shared with God. So God gets a part of them, humanity keeps part of them and they eat together, God and humanity. 
shared meal. Then there's the focus on a blameless substitute, identifying with an animal that was to be killed uh, as, as a blameless substitute for the individual. And there's the focus on entering God's presence by being transformed. And that's represented by the animal that when it's killed is transformed from sort of physical to smoke form. And by being in smoke form, you can enter God's presence. And then there was the ordination of priests that follows that. Now, these priests are anointed mediators who help to represent God to people and people to God. And at this point, God has drawn his people back to himself and promised to dwell among them. It's a risky thing for God to do because God is holy and his people are not. So inviting them to come close to him is inviting something not holy into a place that is holy. Through the tabernacle and the system of sacrifices, God comes to dwell among his people and to be accessible to them. God himself creates a path by which his people can approach him. So Leviticus tells a story of how a sort of limited access to God is made possible. At this time, that access to God is via a kind of bridge. The, the tabernacle is that bridge. And so the gap is still wide. No one's closed the gap, but there is a way to access God. So what happens next? Well, this is our, uh, our second bit. This is um, how God's place is made unclean. And, and that's Nadab and Abihu that are involved in that. These are two priests who are sons of Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. And Aaron has been appointed to be high priest, and so his sons are to be priests too. And on the same day that these priests are ordained, Aaron leads the people in worship. We had that passage uh, from Leviticus, back into Leviticus 9, right at the start. The worship is wholehearted and noisy. Uh, the people all, all shout and exclaim. But then the sons of Aaron make a wrong move. They take a, a wrong turn in their approach to God. They, they make an approach to God in a way that doesn't follow God's instructions. And notice how the response to this is not celebration, but silence. So, so mere sentences beforehand, the people are um, not in uproar, but in, in noisy celebration. Because God's instructions have been followed and God has been present among them. And then all of a sudden, because these priests have made a wrong move, Death has come and there is silence. Now, please notice something important here about the account of what happens to these two priests. We're not really told what it is that they did wrong. Nadab and Abihu, uh, they, um, they use incense and uh, unauthorised fire. That's pretty much all we're told. We can make some educated guesses, but we don't really know what they did wrong. It seems that God is concerned with holiness. Verse 3 suggests that. And it seems there was something about the use of incense that was important, not least because incense was to do with how you approached God. But the text doesn't say, and this bit of it was bad. There are some theories, and if you'll indulge me, I'll share a couple with you. One is that the brothers attempted to go into the Holy of Holies um, at a point when they weren't supposed to. The basis of that theory is found in chapter 16, verse 2, some information about the approach to the Day of Atonement itself. Aaron is told he cannot just go into the most holy place whenever he wants to. And this may indicate that his sons were attempting to do just that, to pick and choose their own moment, to be with God when they felt like it, rather than when God had made himself available. The second theory is the brothers were drunk. 
when they approach God. And the basis for this theory is found in chapter 10, verse 8, where Aaron is told he and his sons, he didn't just have two, uh, so we've got other sons who are priests as well. He and his sons must never drink wine before they enter the tent of meeting. And this may indicate that Nadab and Abihu had done exactly that. But whether it's one of these two theories or something else, the author of Leviticus doesn't feel the need to pin something on them in order to make his point. So the point probably isn't what it is that they've done wrong. The point probably is that God created a way to be approached and the priests have tried to use a different way. Notice as well that this incident didn't concern the people, but the priests. Uh, Sticking with um, Leviticus 10 for a moment, verses 8 to 11, say that the job of the priest is to do two things. One is to teach the people of God the instructions of God, and the other is to model his way, God's way. And by the way, how much do those things sound like being a disciple? In Matthew 28, Jesus calls on his people to make disciples, baptising and teaching them his instructions for living. And his instructions included doing as he had done. So teach people my instructions and do things the way I did them. This is what priests are called to do and this is what Jesus calls disciples to do as well. To be a disciple is to be a priest. One Peter tells us as much. God has expectations of those who would represent him. This is clear. And it's an important thing for us to remember. In fact, it's something that kind of dominates the New Testament. And again, if you'll indulge me for a moment, Jesus gives us the, atti- the, the attitudes of disciples in Matthew 5, often called the Beatitudes. He tells us what kind of character disciples should have. Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians. Peter talks about kindness and respect within families. It would seem that the hallmark of those who would represent Jesus should be to have lives that echo God's own personality. This is the God who describes himself in Exodus 34 and let's just cling on to that for a moment as well. We have New Testament ways of living that springboard out of an Old Testament description of God by God. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Exodus 34 verse 6, that is how God describes himself. And it's exactly the model in the New Testament letters and Gospels of how disciples should be. The brothers then, just coming back to them, have got it wrong. And the text doesn't tell us exactly how, but it does show us that God's way forward is the only way. This uh, then is how they have made God's place unclean by not doing things God's way and as a result by bringing death into God's place. You see what God creates is good and what humanity does is corrupted. We see this in Genesis 3. Here in the first days of the tabernacle's use this recreated Eden of the tabernacle is corrupted, uh, spoiled, um, defiled uh, for want of better words, uh, messed up. Those who have been invited to walk in God's presence have chosen a not-God way of doing so, or a not-God route to travel. Can you see how this is Eden and that first exile reenacted within within moments of, of God's place of meeting being consecrated, being created and made for its purpose? It has been um, corrupted and within days of Eden being created at least so the impression Genesis 3 gives us, within within a short time of it being created, it has been defiled and corrupted by a choice of not God. The thing that Nadab and Abihu do is make God's house unclean. Now, nature abhors a vacuum. It's a, a well-recognised phrase. 
the thing is that nature is not a prima donna that doesn't like vacuums and gets all uppity about vacuums. That's not how it works. Nature simply cannot happen when a vacuum exists. A humanity's not God choices aren't compatible with how creation is supposed to be. They simply don't compute. A holy God can no more ignore polluted life than nature can choose to ignore the absence of an atmosphere and bring life about. It can't happen. And with humanity's nature being to go away from God, we cannot, without God's help, be where God is. But access to God is God's idea and he's really good at it, which is a relief, really. And what he does is show how he can make a way through chaos and out of chaos for humanity to be back with God again. Now, I'm using that chaos idea because we look again at how creation's intention is to is to turn it is to is to make something good make something that is of god make something that's full of life from a place of chaos and and there are echoes of this priority in um in the story of israel in the story of humanity so you, you remember noah uh, he, he gathers uh, his family and the animals on the ark and he escapes through chaos that's the waters of the flood. And we know that waters represent chaos from that Genesis 1 uh, explanation of what was there before creation happened. Do you remember darkness and water represent the chaos from which God made good things? Order of creation is the antithesis. It's the opposite of chaos. Noah escapes through water, that is chaos, uh, and arrives at a place of nearness with God. And we know that it's supposed to signify nearness with God because it's a high up place. So the, the mountain Ararat uh, represents a place that's close to God. And when he gets there, Noah um, makes an offering, an ascension offering, a burnt offering. Uh, and that's something that he's offering might go up to, because of the understanding that that's where God is. Moses and Israel escaping uh, Egypt escapes through chaos. So again, they escape through water and they enter nearness with God. And that high place that time is Mount Sinai, where uh, Moses is given the law. Joshua um, leaves behind the lifeless wilderness, uh, a place that's uh, not of creation because it's lifeless. And he, enter he enters the promised land through the chaos again by going through the waters of the River Jordan. Creation is a response to chaos. It's a bringing of order where there is none, or it's a bringing of life where otherwise there is none. Nadab and Abihu have corrupted Eden with their not-God way, and now God will make a way to bring his people back. So, part three, what is clean and what is not? Following the death of Nadab and Abihu, God gives a series of clear instructions. They are the instructions for how to make God's place clean. And they're instructions that conclude with the Day of Atonement. That's the Leviticus 16 instructions. Some scholars believe that everything from Leviticus 9 to 16 happens on the same day. The deaths of those two priests, Aaron's sons, happen and the instructions are then given about how the, the tabernacle should be made clean and what cleanness is like and how cleanness is, is maintained among the community of God's people. 
So the deaths happen, those instructions are given, and the Leviticus 16 directed to the Day of Atonement happen as well. The, the, the theory is that all those things happen on the same day. So there's, there's a real um, heightened drama going on. That whole section in between, then those two bookends, uh, chapter 10, where the priests uh, die, and chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement, the whole section in between is about what is clean and what is not clean. And we're going to have a quick look at that. But my focus is going to be on theological significance. Now, I have a lot of time for discussions about cleanliness that consider replacing the word clean with the word healthy or holy with healthy in these chapters. And that's done in order to see how God might protect his people's physical health and I get that and it makes a lot of sense for this compassionate God to, to do that to create instructions that have that purpose but my focus at this time is going to be on the author's understanding of the theological significance okay so the job of the priesthood particularly Aaron includes teaching the people about what is clean and what is not clean now, there is a sliding scale at work here. This is not a, a digital situation where things are either on the clean switch or the unclean switch. What we have instead is a sliding scale where we have the concept of sacred and common, and common is divided into two, clean or unclean. So, um, so let's go here, sacred, and then common but clean, and then common and unclean. Also, things that are common can become sacred and things that are unclean can become clean and it can go in the other direction as well. The journey to clean and then to sacred is through sacrifice and cleansing. And just pause to notice this. Things that are common and even unclean are not lost to that uncleanness. This is a reminder for God's people of two things. There is a way back towards God. He has made that possible. And also life can conquer death. Holiness is more powerful than impurity. When you think of the resurrection, what a relief that reality is. God's life, his blood, because blood represents life, can clean up absolutely anything. God's life can deal with any and all kinds of pollution. And this means that the journey from unclean to clean is a journey that God makes possible. Given that this cleansing takes place through the tabernacle, we learn that it is by God's presence that his people are made clean. Even at this point, when there are regulations given to be followed, the regulations indicate that it is God's presence through his tabernacle that is the thing that makes cleanness possible. None of this cleanness is possible without God's instructions. He, he builds the path. He gives you the map. He shows you what shoes to wear so that you can travel along it. And I also want to have, throw a quick note in here about um, the rescue from Egypt. OK, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, from a place of death and misery. And he does that before he gives them a means by which they, he should be approached. So before he says, this is how you must go about approaching me, he's already rescued them. They are already free. They're already liberated um, figuratively from their sin before God has even told them what their sin looks like. The rescue comes before the problem is even understood. Before the people know how they ought to behave, they've already been rescued from the consequences of that. And that's exactly what grace is. Let no one ever tell you, let no one ever tell you 
that God requires you to act towards cleanliness, towards holiness before he can rescue you. It is not true. And the story of the, of the Israelite people and their rescue from Egypt is the proof, one of many proofs of it. This is grace, undeserved favour before the law is even ever given. Now God explains uh, in these chapters between 10 and 16, he explains that humanity should be clean in his presence. And, and that's because of that two natures thing. Uh, nature abhors a vacuum. God simply cannot, uh, it doesn't, doesn't compute for him and impurity to be uh, together. So God explains that humanity should be clean, but he doesn't stop at saying you ought to be clean. He then teaches them how to be. He provides the means to be clean. Have you ever felt um, annoyed when you're presented with a problem? Someone comes and says, here's a problem. And they don't offer any solution to it. You feel kind of powerless and a bit lost. This is exactly the opposite of what God does here. He, he says there's a problem. And then he says, I'm compassionate, God. So while I recognise there's a problem, I'm also going to provide you with the means to solve it. In fact, I'm going to do the solving myself. It's a bit like um, uh, a friend helping you move into a new house and telling you that you're going to have a storage problem and then describes a bit of furniture that would solve that problem and then goes out and buys the materials to build the furniture and then comes back and builds it and invites you to help. That's what it's like. The key motif in these regulations for cleanness is life and death and situations where there is a need for life as an answer to death. Now, as we read these regulations, we must, must, must read them as a voice in their own time and worldview. Now, this doesn't mean that they should be rejected as irrelevant now. I'm not saying that. Please don't mishear me. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that we need to hear what the regulations mean, even if that meaning doesn't feel obvious to us. We should never, ever make the assumption that the Bible ought to be understandable on a simple basis. This is God we're talking about. He's not simple, he's complex. We go back to the idea that we need the experts to help us understand. We read as a community. And we're reading about a foreign time and place. And if you're visiting an unfamiliar far away land, uh, a city or a, a tourist destination, it's a good idea to have an understanding of the local customs and assumptions, that the things that might be normal there and are not normal here, and maybe something of the language too. This is why I say the treasures of Leviticus are not available for a casual or a shallow reading. They're not. We need to understand how culture shapes meaning. So let's look first at life and death. There is uh, a lot of discussion about bodily fluids in these regulations, and we need to remember uh, that blood represents life. And so where there are regulations about childbirth and menstruation uh, and even sexual intercourse, we're talking about instructions for dealing with a loss of life because where fluids give life and are lost, then life is lost. And so something is needed to allow the body to recover after this loss of life. And that might not make so much sense to us because we don't understand blood in the same way. But for them, this made absolute sense. When we understand this, we can see that cleanness is about the priority of life over death. So it's not that lives are corrupted by childbirth or menstruation or sexual intercourse. That's not what's being said here. What is being said is that life which is what God is, takes priority and importance. And it's about reading a culture that understands blood as life. In those situations, in those kinds of cultures where God brings life 
and blood brings life, you'd expect the loss of life fluids to be a big deal to people and they would possibly even need some guidance about how they respond to that. By the way, when we read these regulations, we need to ditch an unhelpful idea. So just a moment on that. Not all of death is down to moral failure. The connection between these two things is understandable and there is a sense of connection indeed because um, with God, when we have God and God is involved in things, there is no loss of life. Um, God himself is not some someone who brings about lots of life. Loss of life only happens as a result of, of a not God culture or a not God choice or a not God nature. But death isn't automatically linked with moral failure. Even, and even I'd say particularly important to recognise that inside Leviticus. So the need to be clean isn't always the same as the need to be forgiven. A quick reference back to the, the section of Leviticus that we looked at previously that was to do with sacrifices. So if we look at, at Leviticus 4 verses 20 and 26 and 31 and 35 and then at chapter 5 verses 6 and 10, that's all within that sacrifices section. There are ways in which those sacrifices enable the individual to be forgiven. When we're in this section about cleanness, we've got Leviticus 12 verse 8 and 14 verse 31, for example. In this section, we have actions that, that by being taken brings about a being clean. So if you do these things, you shall be clean. It's not if you do these things, you shall be forgiven. That's taking place in the sacrifices section. This section is different. And we need to recognise the difference between uh, the need to be clean and the need to be forgiven. There, as I say, there are there are connections, but they're not the same thing. So we'll go back to the regulations and we'll move on from bodily fluids. We're going to look at clean and unclean animals. Unclean animals fall into categories. OK, so there are um, carnivorous predators. The reason why these are unclean is because they're associated with death. That's because they bring about death in order to eat. And then there are scavengers. They are associated with death, too, because they eat something that's already dead. And then there are animals that live in caves. These are associated with death because caves functioned as tombs. So animals that lived in caves lived in places that were associated with death. And then there's pigs. Pigs were associated with death as well because in the ancient Near Eastern pagan world, pigs were connected with underworld deities. So that if you like, um, gods of the realm of the dead would appear as pigs. So you, you pigs were unclean. Then you've got fish without scales. This is slightly different. They are associated with death too, but that's because they are they defy the natural order. So their class of creature is fish and fish have scales. So to have a fish without scales is to find a fish that defies the created order. They don't represent order, which means they represent chaos. And that's where death is. These regulations have a lot to do with the existing worldview, don't they? That, that thing about pigs, the thing about caves, they are, that's an experience drawn from the there and then of the people. God accommodates his explanations of himself, particularly to do with life and death, to the culture of the people he's talking to. I'm going to say that again. God accommodates his explanations of himself to the culture of the people he's talking to. So the instructions aren't absolute, even though they come from one whose understanding of life and death is absolute. The instructions are accommodated to the understanding of the time. Now this, this can be unnerving for us because for some of us, 
we we feel like we need the Bible to be absolute all the time. We, we want to be able to take a simple reading. Anything more complicated leaves us feeling off balance, and I understand that. But in fact, the Bible does this all the way through. Jesus accommodates his message to the people he talks to. That is why he uses parables. Paul accommodates his message to the people he's talking to when he goes on his missionary journeys, most obviously in Acts 17 when he's in Athens. With those situations and with this one, we need to absolutely let this book, Leviticus, speak to its original audience and then to learn about what it's saying, that God is a God of life. Anything that takes humanity away from God and life is to be avoided. To be unclean is simply to stay away from God's life-giving presence. So these instructions and regulations matter enormously. And the reason why they matter is that what they tell us about God's priorities and his desire to bring life and make a way for his people to share it. He wants them to be able to share the life that he brings because he is a God who describes himself as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Exodus 34 verse 6. This compassionate God, this amazingly compassionate God, makes that welcome to be with him in his presence, to be back to Eden again. And in that context, the outside of the camp that's referred to is seen as being outside God's presence. In that context, the wilderness is understood as being a place outside the presence of God, outside the created order, because it is lifeless or seen as being like that. Of course, to our modern sensibilities, we know that no desert is without life, but that wasn't the experience of the people who walked there. Anyway, the regulations for being clean serve as an explanation for how approaching God means seeking to be like him. And being like him means being full of life. So kill and eat a scavenger animal and you allow death into your food chain. Ignore the loss of blood involved in childbirth, for example, and you're allowing the loss of life to be part of your every day. God is full of life and offers abundant life to his people. These cleanness laws are about tabernacle life, keeping the tabernacle clean because the tabernacle is God's holy presence among his people. So the instructions are about keeping the corruption of death away from, separate from the abode of God who is all life. The food laws of cleanness or purity have another function. They serve to distinguish between Israel and the nations. And in this way, every meal was a reminder that God chose his people. Can you see how, how God's instructions to his people are full of meaning? I was talking recently uh, with someone uh, as I was reflecting on working through the book of Leviticus. Uh, and I can see that, um, that it is a story, but it's a story with more meaning than plot. You know, there's there's such a richness of meaning here that it, it it layers so much meaning on the plot. It's the reason why we need to look so carefully at understanding it. In the light of those um, food laws, food, food cleanness laws, we see a richer meaning to Acts 10, which is the story of Peter recognising uh, the spirits declaring of all nations as being clean on, on the way to... Um, before he's on the way to see a Gentile, before the Gentile turns up and says, would you come and tell us uh, about the good news? He has this dream. And in the dream, he's presented with a whole load of unclean foods, which he won't touch. And then the spirit says, you, you can't you can't say things that are unclean when God has made them clean. He reminds Peter of the food laws. 
in order to show him that they are no longer required. The distinction between chosen Israel and the nations is something Peter then sees in a different light, and he recognises that the call to follow Jesus is a call for all the nations. And at that point, those laws are done away with for all those disciples of Jesus. Now the food laws, just to roll, roll back to, to this chunk of Leviticus, work as a reminder of identity and calling. These are God's people, called to be his, and all the time he promises to dwell among them. Ultimately, of course, in Jesus, he does that in physical presence. Jesus being God you can shake hands with rather than God in the tent of meeting who can only be accessed once a year. So on to our fourth and final point, the Day of Atonement. And at this point, I've been running for 40 minutes and I'm conscious that there's a lot going on here. I hope you can see with me the sense of excitement in what we're learning. And I'm going to crack on. Here we have the heart of Leviticus and the heart of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. This, uh, this day is truly the nearest thing to a return to Eden. It is to be done once a year and it resolves the tension brought about by the brothers Nadab and Abihu. The damage they did by their not-God choice has led to the need for cleanness instructions. The, the corruption they brought has led to their moment of renewal. And in this moment, a clean tabernacle offers a moment of profound and renewed connection with God, a reconciliation like nothing before, uh, a heartfelt and, and God-initiated invitation home to a, a restored Eden. We know it isn't complete. Hebrews would explain how Jesus is better. But still, this is beautiful and wondrous. The tabernacle is cleansed. The divine can be approached. Eden is recreated, not just as a physical space, but as a concept, that, that place for humanity and God to walk together is renewed. So for the Day of Atonement itself, various things are happening. The priest is purified, and that priest represents the people. God is approached through an offering, a, a sin offering, and the scapegoat is in action too. Now here's what I want to draw your attention to. The Day of Atonement is a cleansing moment. Once a year, the tabernacle is made clean. This is a way of recognising that humanity's uncleanness would otherwise prevent God from dwelling with them, as nature and a vacuum cannot coexist, so the life of God and the God of life cannot coexist alongside the corruption of death. The cleansing element also acts as a forerunner of cosmic cleansing in the day of the Lord, much as God cleansed creation through the Noah flood, a, a, a recreation moment. The Day of Atonement is also a close encounter of the divine kind. This is a, a step on the path of deepening intimacy with God. And this, after all, is the purpose of God, that, that encounter between himself and humanity. The goal is a progressively deepening relationship with God. And, and the other end of Leviticus will spend more time on that. It's what Jesus offers us too. Come and learn from me, he says. Progressively deepening relationship with God. God turns up to be with his people, represented through the priest, through that Day of Atonement. The tabernacle uh, in this Day of Atonement also represents the mountain of God. The cherubim guard the entrance. They are embroidered on the curtain and they are statues um, in gold on the altar. But the high priest acts as a kind of um, uh, representative Adam in this sort of cultus worship pattern. He is, the high priest is the one who can enter, as Adam could at Eden. And then there's the goat. 
Let me read briefly from Leviticus 16, 20-22. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward a live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Okay, so there's this live goat. In fact, there are two live goats and they're chosen to look exactly alike. One goat will be sacrificed. It's sacrifice is cleansing. That's the goat that's killed as a blameless substitute, a sin offering, a flawless animal for a sin offering like we talked about last time. It can be killed and presented at the holy place because it is blameless. It doesn't have to be taken out of the holy place because it's full of sin. It's a blameless substitute. And then there's the other one. This is the scapegoat and that's where we get the concept from. Both goats are innocent, but this second goat has a different role. This second goat has the sins of the nation confessed over it and then is symbolically carried away with those sins. So the sins are taken out of God's presence, away from camp. But it's not killed. Those sins are not carried away by the slaughter of the goat. Instead, that goat is led out of the camp and taken to the lifeless and therefore godless wilderness. And they're left there as a man chosen for the task. The goat that carries the sin away is not punished, but removed. The Day of Atonement marks the start of the new year. It's a moment of cleansing, of purification. It's a moment of acceptance by God and welcome into his presence. And it's a moment of freedom from the tyranny of sin as that sin is taken away. Okay. As previous talks have been, it feels a bit whistle-stop and I appreciate that you've stayed with me for 45 minutes already. Uh, so I'm going to finish with this. Leviticus does the job of a musical overture. In an overture, you get snippets of the bigger piece of music. It's like being given a tour of the various doors to the building, but you don't go in. Israel gets this overture. It receives this piece of music. It gains an understanding of God wanting to dwell with his people and of God making it possible for humanity to approach him. Israel is chosen to be a light for the nations. So God's choosing Israel isn't purely for its own sake. God's choice of Israel is for the sake of the world. It perhaps makes sense that Israel gets the overture because the full piece of music is for the whole world, Israel included. Now you don't get overtures before symphonies, you get them at the start of operas and things like that. And, and that is the bigger drama. We're having an overture here to a bigger drama of God's final rescue through Jesus his sacrifice, his death and resurrection, and the new, renewed, consummated, completed, finished work of creation that he will ultimately bring. To understand that, all that that is going to bring, all of what that opera is like and how the overture works with it, it really helps to read Hebrews and I would urge you to do so. As Paul describes, the law was there to describe a problem to explain the problem, to, to set the parameters for the problem. The problem of the two natures that cannot exist together. Genesis, Exodus and Leviticus explain the problem and then describe a solution that's devised and implemented by, implemented by God. And then Jesus fulfills that solution. 
Jesus embodies the law and prophets. Jesus is God dwelling with us. And so Jesus is the God-devised way to approach the Father. Jesus is the sacrificial system and Jesus is the scapegoat. And so Jesus is also the atonement in its completion. Jesus is our invitation back to God, our way to reach him and our way to share his presence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are indeed an amazing embodiment of atonement. We pray that we would understand the importance of being clean. The importance of, of being right when we are with you, that we might echo who you are, that we might echo the, the created life of humanity as you intended it to be. We pray that we will pursue that as we look to honour the humanity that you created. We pray that you would continue to remove our sin from us as you removed that goat from camp. And we thank you for the blameless substitute that you are. And now would you encourage and inspire us to stick with Leviticus to be excited by all that you show us about yourself in it and to turn to Hebrews as a way of deepening our understanding of how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. We are blessed by you Lord Jesus. Would you accept our praise and our thanks. Amen.